I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and lamps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory. Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, I've been gone a while. I've been on summer break i guess you could call it that uh but um i'm back and ready to go i'll be looking at uh i'll be going back to the civil war series it's uh something i've been working on for a while and i'm going to continue looking at the documents collected by the library of america and their four volume anthology of of american civil war writings um and so that's what we're going to do for the next I don't know, 10, 15 episodes is is finish up this look at the at the American Civil War. So the uh, first we're, we're basically picking up uh, where I left off uh, a few months ago uh, with the end of 1862. And now we're we're jumping into 1863. And of course, this is a really exciting period to look at when we're looking at the Amer- American Civil War. We have Really, I guess the, the main theme here is just what the impact of emancipation was on the war and on America. Um, and of course, we have the climactic battles of Vicksburg and Gettysburg and how those transformed, uh, really turned the tide of the war. The rise of Sherman, the rise of Grant, and the the emergence of, of, of Lincoln really as the, the, the greatest president the United States ever had. So we're um, that's what we're gonna gonna study with. But of course, the the beginning uh, of 1863 was you know was still frustrating time uh, in terms of of you know like the military uh, fates for the United States, uh, the devastating defeat at Chancellorsville, for instance. Um, but we're gonna get to that. Uh, in upcoming episodes but I really what I really want to focus on here is just how emancipation changed the you know what the war was about right this is of course what the Gettysburg Address is all about um, and what the you know the formation of the 50 uh, the 54th Massachusetts Regiment and things like that the arming of formerly enslaved men, uh, men into an army a liberating army that would be crucial in the war effort um but if you remember you know we just ended with a major defeat uh of the union at fredericksburg uh ambrose burnside is still in charge of the union army in virginia of course at this point and that would not be long lasting that would you know we'd, we'd get a change of leadership to uh joseph hooker and then eventually to george meade and that would continue on until, of course, Grant takes over overall command of the, of the army in, is it 1864? I think so. But, um, yeah. So, as I've been saying in this series, I, I think this is a wonderful anthology just because it puts together so many different voices from so many different perspectives about the American Civil War. I think it's quite good at that. Um, at the same time, though, it does give you that standard narrative, that standard history, so you could 
you know, set aside Battle, uh, or not Battle Him, uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, um, the James McPherson book, and just read this, and you'll get the history of the American Civil War. Um, which, of course, I, I actually have that right next to me, uh, the Battle Cry of Freedom, which is such a great book. Uh, you know, one of the really the, the classic history of the American Civil War that really hasn't been. Um, overtaken I think by historians there's been a lot more research about the American Civil War looking at the perspective of women and the perspective of southern nationalism and the perspective of of enslavement and women and all that but as a straight up overall general history of the war I don't think the battle cry of freedom has been overtaken but it's uh, what I'm trying to say is that this anthology does the job right of telling the story of the war um, through primary sources um, anyways, I guess we can jump right in to the first hundred pages of documents in this third volume of, of this series. So the first documents we have are really looking at the aftermath of the Battle of Fredericksburg and the, the experience of both armies in that aftermath. Um, basically, it seems both sides kind of settled in for like wintering. And there wasn't much fighting, so there's a lot of boredom, a lot of, of maybe marching, uh, especially in the case of the Union, because they had their mud march thing going on. But it was uh, kind of a, the, the war kind of slowed down a little bit, it seems, for, uh, at least it did in Virginia. And our first document kind of speaks to that. Uh, we got Edmund DeWitt Patterson's journal from January 20th, 1863. He was in the 9th Alabama, serving in Virginia. And this is, of course, written after the Battle of Fredericksburg. And he talks mostly about the boredom he was experiencing while uh, camped out in, in, in Virginia. Um, but there's a nice little moment in here, too, where he talks about the troops on both sides actually engaging in a bit of play playing you know snowballing uh, playing snow you know snowball fights with each other uh, in um during this wintering um and it seems that both sides kind of participated in this so it's just sort of a little fun but mostly he's talking about the overall day-to-day -day boredom that they experienced um now back to the union side we have theodore a dodge's journal and that is um this document's mostly about the so-called mud march which was uh effort to kind of move around and you know get out of those camps near fredericksburg and, and move on and maybe get uh, uh in a better position for attacking the confederates in virginia and this led to just a disastrous logistically disastrous march um in virginia which was became known as the mud march just because it was slow and dragged on, you know, it was a, like I said, it was a logistical disaster. It, it, it was difficult just because of, you know, moving the cannons, moving the, the troops through uh, this muddy ground. And he writes about this several times. He, he writes, for instance, uh, you watch a train a little while and you see horses dropping dead from sheer exhaustion every now and then. A four horse team cannot possibly drag more than a thousand pounds over these roads and scarcely that. Uh, later, he writes, as expected, so it's come to pass. The batteries, which moved down to Banks Ford three days ago, are now moving back again. It seems that mud really is king. 
He sets down his foot and says, Ye shall not pass, and lo and behold, we cannot. But mud wields more despotic sway these last two days than I've ever seen wield before. So this is just a failure of logistics. Now, who's to blame? Well, according to Dodge, the, the blame falls on Burnside's leadership. And I think that's another kind of theme we see in these documents in the aftermath of the Battle of Fredericksburg is rank and file as well as leadership uh, turning on Burnside. Um, we're even going to document, I think, a little bit later on here where George Meade talks, who would be later commander of the, of the Union Army in the East, uh, he talks about how, you know, Burnside just doesn't really have what it takes. He's well-meaning and he's not a bad kind of leader in, you know, he's, he's, he's presented as kind of fair and, and honest, but just not, doesn't have the capacity to, to lead the army in what, what's needed to be done. In fact, it's so bad that we have uh, doc, uh, we have comments here suggesting that people would have much preferred M McClellan's return, right? And of course, McClellan was the the previous leader of the Army of the Potomac, uh, replaced by Lincoln in, in ways we talked about uh, in earlier episodes. But Dodge here writes um, the. The, the troops were of the opinion that if McClellan were known to have been reinstated, not only would such cheers go up from the Army of the Potomac, as were never heard, but they would march with such will and confidence upon Fredericksburg, either to storm the heights or to flank the town, as would inevitably ensure success. Uh, end quote. So it's uh, this is a good document, I think, showing the frustration with Burnside's leadership and the mud march which isn't entirely his fault, obviously. The weather played a big role, but he just didn't have the logistical capacity to organize you know, what was required to, to overtake the, the environment that they were, they were facing in Virginia this winter. So then we have Henry Adams uh, writing to Charles Francis Adams. We've seen many letters like this. Uh, if you don't quite remember, Henry Adams uh, was, of course, advising his father, who was ambassador to Great Britain at the time, and Charles Francis Adams was in the front. Uh, so there's a lot of these letters back and forth, mostly from Henry Adams' point of view, which I guess makes sense. He's the much more famous historical figure. But this one is about the impact of emancipation on, on public opinion in London. And in Britain, uh, this was, of course, a major theme we've seen previously is the bad relations between the United States and Great Britain. And, of course, uh, emancipation eventually helped m ensure that Great Britain wouldn't side with the Confederacy or wouldn't recognize the Confederacy. Um, and it helped smooth over those relationships because, you know, Britain was, you know, in terms of its international image on the side of emancipation. You know, of course, enforcing the, the ban on the slave trade and things like that. Uh, this is kind of whitewashing a little bit the, the reality of their empire, which uh, has slavery of all sorts, you know, of types across their empire. But that's that's a separate question for a different podcast, I suppose. But Henry Adams here really does think, and, and rightfully so, that emancipation has... Done, he says it does more than the victories, military victories in swaying British opinion on the side of the United States and helping with their diplomacy. Quote, it is creating an almost convulsive reaction in our favor all, all over this country. The London Times is furious and scolds like a drunken draft. Uh, end quote. Uh, the London Times was a, 
a more conf pro-Confederate rag at the time. But uh, that's his opinion here. Um, I think that's all we have to say about this. It's just that this decision to end slavery by, by Lincoln in 1863, I guess it was January 1st, right, when the final Emancipation Proclamation was signed. You know, it had a lot to do with domestic the domestic military situation, the large number of, of runaway slaves in the field, uh, flooding the Union armies. So why not just mobilize them and, and give them a legal status? That was part of it. Part of it was also we need the troops, right? If we can mobilize these into an active military force, that'd be great. But it was also a, a diplomatic coup for, for the Union. So next we have a nice letter but from George uh, Meade to Margaret Meade. Uh, George Meade, of course, would later on be the commander of the Union Army in Virginia. Um, Margaret Meade was his wife. And he talks quite a lot about Burnside here. And he is, I think, fair to Burnside. Of course, he faced a, you know, a pretty devastating military defeat and then the mud march. And he had no faith. There's no faith um, among the troops for his leadership. And here Meade talks about how some of this is a little bit unfair um, to him, but like most other commentators about Burnside's leadership, the, his opinion is that he's really not up for the task, but you know, he's also kind of feels sorry for him, quote. He really seems to have all the elements against him. I told him warmly when I saw him, how sorry I felt, and that I had almost rather had lost a limb than that the storm should have occurred. He's talking here about the mud march. I sh see he seemed quite philosophical, said he could not resist the elements, and perhaps it was as well, for that his movements had been most strongly opposed, and some of his generals had told him he was leading the, the men to a slaughter pen. Quote. So he writes about that, and then he also talks to her a little bit about. Uh, Hooker's promotion, because that's happening in the backdrop here, is is Joseph Hooker being promoted to replace Burnside, and he himself is saying he doesn't really want this position, but he has, um, he also has sort of mixed feelings about about Hooker's promotion, I suppose. But very modestly here, he talks about how, you know, he's going to command a grand division. That was a Burnside thing, by the way. Uh, I think the Hooker and later Meade would get rid of that. Uh, and re like return the core structure. I think the Grand Division was kind of a rearrangement, which I'm not sure is a good idea to do in the middle of a war to totally rearrange your military structure. But I suppose there's times it's necessary, but it seems that Burnside's approach to this was maybe, I don't know where he gets his idea of a Grand Division from, maybe from Europe or some European fad, but it's kind of essentially like a, a core, uh, the level of a core, like multiple divisions. And he says, like, oh, I'll be commanding the Grand Division, and that's as high as I want to go. And, of course, knowing that he would become later on the leader of the whole army and win the, the greatest victory of the Union uh, at Gettysburg is, um, you know, it's fun to read that, I suppose, uh, for me anyways. So next we get what's one of my favorite Lincoln documents that I've read in this entire series on the American Civil War. Of course, I did a whole series on Lincoln before, and maybe I came across this document then. I don't think so, though. Um, I don't remember it. But um, this is Abraham Lincoln to Joseph Hooker, and he's writing, giving him command of, of the Army of the Potomac. 
And he says a wonderful thing here, which I just love. Is he says, like, I've heard that you are basically kind of in favor of, of dictatorship uh, or maybe imposing some kind of military dictatorship. You're not a big friend of mine and the Republic, I suppose. He says, I have heard in such a way as to believe it of your recent saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, I was not for this, but in spite of this, that I have given you the command. End quote. So he's saying, I've heard you say things about dictatorship that we need it. And I've known about this. And nevertheless, I'm giving you command of the army. And he says, this is what, it, this is what I loved about Lincoln here. He says, only those generals who gain success can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. End quote. And that's uh, uh, really quite uh, brilliant use of words there, I think. Um, and, and kind of humorous, in a way. He says, like, as long as you win a battle, I'm that desperate for a victory, I will risk your megalomaniacal uh, rants about dictatorship, and we'll see what comes out if you do, like, win the war. That's going to be, a, that's like tomorrow's problem. Today's problem is you got to win a battle. Of course he doesn't. <laughs> um, but that's that. So, um, so the, the, this is all, the, all these documents up to this point are really dealing with the transition from Burnside to, 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 to Hooker's leadership. And that would be very short lived, of course, just one, one spring before the, uh, he was in turn replaced by George Meade. So um, next we have documents about the, the 54th Massachusetts, which this anthology, I think, rightfully emphasizes. It talks quite a lot about this particular uh, story, and you've all seen this story dramatized in the movie Glory, uh, of course, which I actually just re-saw. I re-watched that uh, movie uh, over the summer, and while I was kind of looking at some of these documents, I noticed like they were first talking about raising this regiment in January of 1863. And of course the, the attack on Fort Wagner happens like in the summer of 63, but there's a scene in glory, which is set like while they're training where one of the characters is like, Merry Christmas, Robert. And I was like, well, there's no time. There's never a Christmas you know, at this time. So that was kind of a, an anachronism in the movie that they put in for some uh, dramatic moment, I suppose. But I wouldn't have noticed that had I not been reading these documents at the same time. Um, but anyways, it's in January 1863, just days literally after the Emancipation Proclamation was implemented, that we see the beginning of the formation of this regiment. This... For, this... Uh, this you know, infamous first black regiment. And here we have a, a letter from Johnny Andrews, who's pushing for this formation of this regiment to Francis Shaw saying like, I think your son is the man for the job. Robert Shaw, of course, is the one who, do, who would eventually take on that job. And he says like, your son has all he needs. He's like an abolitionist from an abolitionist family. He's a good soldier with a good reputation. Um, and he's got anti-slavery principles. Um, he, he, actually, he actually lists these here. I'll just read them. I'm desirous for it to have its officers, particularly its field officers, young men of military experience, affirm anti-slavery principles, ambitious, superior to a vulgar contempt for color, 
racist and anti-racist and having faith in the capacity of colored men for military service. Such officers must be necessarily gentlemen of the highest tone and honor. And I shall look for them in those circles of educated anti-slavery society. End quote. So he says, the first person I think of is your son, Robert, Robert Shaw. Um, quote, the more ardent, faithful, true Republicans and friends of liberty will recognize in him a scion of a tree whose fruits and leaves have like contributed to the strength and healing of our generation. End quote. So this is this is before he offers the commission to Robert. He actually asks for permission from his his father, which he gets. So the next document we have is a bit related. It's William Parker Cutler's diary from February 1863, in which the issue of mobilizing black soldiers was being debated in Congress, and eventually they authorized 150,000. And I think by the end of the war, there's like 200,000 had served. Of course, casualties were high, so this this might be the the main law that 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 led to the mobilization of black troops. Um, but this basically talks about that, and this is from a Republican point of view, a radical Republican point of view, an abolitionist point of view. But there's some interesting things here where he, he talks about talking to Lincoln about some of Lincoln's concerns about really Reconstruction, right? He's already, you get the sense he's already thinking about Reconstruction. And he, and he says here, he was troubled to know, this is Lincoln, he was troubled to know what we should do with these people, Negroes, after peace came, right? So we know this is kind of on his mind. He played earlier in his career with like colonization. Um, obviously, the military necessity pushed him to emancipation and the Republican Party helped push him to emancipation. And eventually he embraced that wholeheartedly. But he was always concerned about like, integrating uh, these former slaves into the country, which is why he never kind of fully let go of colonization as an idea, even though it was ridiculous. But um, here we got Cut Cutler saying, talking back to Lincoln here, saying the same plantations that now require their labor would need them just as much, end quote. And that seems to be a generous point of view compared to Lincoln's, who's saying like, what are we gonna do with these people? Maybe we should send them to Africa. Uh, but nevertheless, if we look at what actually happened in Reconstruction, right, a lot of it was keep black people working on the land, keep them poor, keep them as a, a labor force. Let's not do land reform. All right. Let's keep the plantations intact and we'll just put the former slaves to work to them as sharecroppers or wage laborers or something like that or prison laborers, whatever it might be. And. And so this debate here, I think the more radical position is not even being discussed in this conversation between Lincoln and Cutler, which is land reform, right? Um, and maybe that's something we'll get to in a future episode if I ever do purchase the, the volume on Reconstruction, because there is kind of a sequel to these four volumes, which is a recently released volume on Reconstruction, which I don't have yet, but, but I, you know, Maybe in the future I'll, I'll get it. Because certainly I think there's so much, like that's like the quantum leap moment in American history in many ways is the is reconstruction. Had that gone a different way, you know, I think the entirety of American history would have been different. I, was, I, was, I read like 
is it Richard Wright's book, um, The Republic for Which It Stands, which is the Oxford uh, History of the United States, the multi-volume Oxford History of the United States. Uh, and that's the volume about like the reconstruction to the early 20th century. And that book talks a lot about how reconstruction as it was conceived, actually was implemented, fed into the colonization of the West and all of that um, stuff, like the, the conquest of the Indians, the, the mass settlement of the plains, and all of how that fed into industrialization. So there's a whole conversation about that in that book. And so that is just confirmed me in my mind more that Reconstruction really was our quantum leap moment. That was the moment things could have went differently had there been different leadership, had there been a, a more aggressive take towards the southern landowners. I don't know what it would have been, but um, you know this conversation between Lincoln and and Cutler made me think of it. Made me think of that that larger debate. So next we have just a couple documents here, one from um, Oliver Norton to Edward Norton from the 83rd Pennsylvania, talking about lice infesting the, you know, the, the camps, and he calls this a soldier's pest. And this sort of parallels Robert E. Lee's letter to his wife, Mary Lee, about the lack of food supplies for the, for the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's army in Virginia. Um, so. You know, they, they kind of are just happen to be next to each other, but they both sort of speak to the same thing, which is just the the day-to-day -day troubles of, of military life in the in 19th century America. So next we have uh, Robert Gould Shaw writing to Anne Haggerty, which that, that she was his fiancée, I think. I don't think they ever got married because he, of course, he would be dead by uh, within a few months um, at the Battle of Fort Wagner. But... He talks about his reasons for accepting his command, the command of the 50th Massachusetts. And it's pretty clear what his intentions here are. Um, partially that's it's personal, where he says, like, as a colonel, I get more furlough, I can see you. But maybe that's just him giving his fiance a good reason to support this decision, right? To say, well, I can spend more time with you. I don't know how much time he actually did spend with her. Um, as a colonel, but that's one thing he said. Um, but here, it really comes down to this. He says, it's needless for me to overwhelm you with the quality of arguments in favor of Negro troops because you are with mother, the warmest advocate the cause can have. I'm inclined to think that the undertaking will not meet with so much opposition as first supposed. All sensible men in the army of all parties, after a little thought, say that it is the best thing that can be done. And surely those at home who are not brave or patriotic enough to enlist should not ridicule or throw obstacles in the way of men who are going to fight for them. There is a great prejudice against them, but now that it has become the government matter, they'll probably wear away. At any rate, I shall be frightened out of it by its unpopularity, and I hope you won't care if it's made fun of. Unquote. Now later, now he's, I think he's got a deeper agenda here um, from what I've read of Robert Goulshaw. And that is, and of course, he's incredibly young when he's writing this, so we have to give him a lot of credit for his insight into this point, was um, black men are going to have to prove themselves in battle, not just be like 
uh, auxiliary forces in the army, right? That's one of the reasons he volunteered his unit to be in the assault on Fort Wagner, right? Or to be a, a, in a frontline position. Knowing he would probably die, or there'd be a good chance he would die in that assault, knowing that the result of that would be public opinion would turn towards greater respect for these former slaves. So that's really what's on his mind. It's like my job here is to prove that these are completely, in terms of, of military quality, equal or superior to white troops. Um, and he talks about like the prejudice, the discrimination against black uh, soldiers being in the army that's still there in the military, right? He's, he's downplaying it a little bit to his fiance, but it's certainly there. Um, and he says, quote, you now know how many eminent men consider a Negro army of the greatest importance to our country at this time. If it turns out to be so, how fully repaid the pioneers of this movement will be for what they may have to go through, end quote. So that's what it's about. It's about proving them and then the consequences of that proving should be a better situation for black people at the end of the war, right? And this is kind of brings us back to the question of reconstruction and the betrayal of black folks after the war, right? With the failure of land reform, the failure of reconstruction to be fully followed through on, right? Where vigilante violence was allowed to continue. Land reform was not allowed. Laws were passed that limited, and now some of those were struck down, of course, by the more radical republics in Congress and the 14th Amendment. But as the decades went on and they, you know, the post-Reconstruction era, you know, turned into the Jim Crow years, right? It's clear that Gould, Robert Gould Shaw hopes were not fully realized. But it's clear what his goal here is. And I think that helps us, you know, understand the end of his life a lot better and of course the end of the lives of many of the men who who served under him so we're going to see we're going to say say more about the 54th massachusetts in the next uh handful of episodes what else do we have here uh, we got a speech from isaac funk in the illinois state senate um from february 1863 and this is I think part of a, you know, th there's, a, there's a political divide in the union between those who maybe are more supporting peace, the so-called peace Democrats, those who wanted to fight the war to the end, those who wanted the war to achieve a social revolution, emancipation or, or a, a more full reconstruction that would have brought social and economic equality to, to black people. You have those, and then you have people who are like, okay, secession was wrong, but we're not necessarily talking, you know, we're not necessarily for transforming the South or imposing the end of slavery on the South or whatever. And there's many of these, you know, Democrats that are still in positions of power in state legislatures and in Congress. And Isaac Funk here is talking directly to them. Uh, in a, in a speech in the, in the state Senate. Now, what the Democrats are trying to do, apparently, according to this speech, was block some kind of Republican legislation and basically follow through on some of the stuff that the government's trying to do. And Isaac Funk here, a, a more radical Republican, just 
calls them out as traitors. And it's a pretty bold speech that, that does just that. Um, quote, I could not sit longer in my seat and calmly listen to these traitors. My heart that feels for my poor country would not let me. My heart that cries out for the lives of our brave volunteers in the field that these traitors at home are destroying by thousands would not let me. My heart that bleeds for the widows and orphans at home would not let me. Yet these traitors and villains in the Senate are killing my neighbor's boys now fighting in the field. I dare to say this to these traitors right here, that I am responsible for what I say to any or all of them. And that's what like the that's how the whole speech feels is a pretty stark and direct uh, exposure of the of the treasonous behavior of many of these so-called peace Democrats. Yeah, they may have wanted to end the war in that sense they were for peace, but they were also for the continuation of a system of systematic violence against against uh, 4 million people in the South. Now, I'm going to come back to these peace democrats in a little bit, but we have one more document to look at first, and that is William Sherman to his, I think it's to his brother-in-law and father, or two different letters, one to his brother-in-law, one to his father. And these are both about the press, so something that Sherman was pretty uh, salty about was the behavior of the press. Um, so the New York Herald published the story that attacked his leadership in the Battle of uh, Chickasaw Bayou, which was one of the parts of the Vicksburg campaign. Now, of course, that campaign went on for like six or eight months. Or so. It was a really long campaign. And of course, it's in contrast, like Gettysburg, you know, we often talk about Vicksburg and Gettysburg happened at the same time, right? The siege of Vicksburg ended around the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg was fought but that was a three Gettysburg was a three-day battle um vicksburg was a multi-multi-month camp, campaign um that that had setbacks and victories throughout it and one of the setbacks was this sherman's uh, assault on chickasaw bayou and the press was critical of his leadership and sherman actually had this reporter thomas knox court-martialed um because he was like an army correspondent with the press. And he had him court-martialed as a spy, essentially. So he used the power of his military office to basically uh, accuse this guy of being a spy for the Confederacy. And he defends this decision to his... Or sorry, it's not his father, it's his brother and to his um, brother-in-law. Now, he acknowledges how powerful the press is. He says, quote, the northern press either make public opinion or reflect it by gradual steps public opinion instead of being governed governs our country all bow to it and even military men who are sworn officers of the executive branch of the government go behind and look to the public opinion the consequence is and has been that officers instead of keeping the executive branch advised of all its movements events or circumstances that would enable it to act advisedly and with vigor communicate with the public directly through the press so that the government authorities are operating in on by public opinion formed too often on false or interested information. This has weakened our executive and created jealousies, mistrust, and actual sedition, end quote. Now, I don't think his argument's totally, you know, is wrong here. This is, you know, why the press isn't allowed to release everything they want about, like, military secrets or whatever, particularly in wartime. So, um, but, you know, Sherman is acknowledging the power of the press while also like 
for that reason, he's coming down quite hard on it, uh, even if it means court-martialing someone for what he, he calls at one point criminal negligence. Now, in the letter to his brother, he goes a little bit farther and says, like, we are, we are saying the South is so bad for, for uh, coercing her people. And he talks about, like, limiting the freedom of the press. And he actually says, yeah, and, and we should do the same thing. The press should be the servant of, of the government and not be a totally free, free agent in wartime. And he makes a contrast. He says, in the South, this powerful machine was at once scotched and used by the rebel government, but at the North was allowed to go free. What are the results? After arousing the passions of the people till the two great sections hate each other with a hateful, hardly paralleled in history, it now begins to stir up sedition at home and even to encourage mutiny in our armies. What has paralyzed the army of the Potomac? Mutual jealousies kept alive by the press. What has enabled the enemy to combine so as to hold Tennessee after we have twice crossed it with victorious armies? Armies. What defeats and will continue to defeat our best plans here and elsewhere? The press. End quote. Now, you know, I think in today's media environment, you know, the kind of the cats out of the bag, I don't know how anything could really be totally suppressed. Um, in this day, though, you know, I don't know if you think he's wrong here. He's saying it is making our job harder. And maybe you could make the case that free, freedom of speech is so important that the military should be hamstringed by, by the press. And if it makes the job of the military harder, so be it. Which is, I suppose, a perfectly valid point of view if you're, you know, saying the United States is not capable of any good. And it's just an agent of evil in the world. And there are there are people who think that, right? And then the press has its job to kind of dig up that evil and expose it. But you know in this context, I, I don't think Sherman is wrong in acknowledging the power of the press to sabotage the military and sabotage the military campaigns and and all that. And he's even, he even says, like, the war itself is a fault of the press, right? It, it thrived off sectional division in the lead up to the war, right? It, you know, yeah, there were real issues at the heart of the sectional divide. The fugitive slave law and the expansion of slavery to the West and all these things were very, very real. But I get his point here, right? If you were to read the newspaper at the time, it, you know, every newspaper was partisan. You would come away from that saying, like, they're fueling the fire, right? And we people were in their, their, their media bubbles, just like they are now, right? And, and I think we can look at the world today, at least the United States today, and say, look at the media. It is contributing to deep, deep divisions within the United States. So I think there's something to ponder here, but I, 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 I'm not, not quite sure which. Well, I, I want to say this. I think I think Sherman's right about the power, power of the media. That's all. I guess that's my position. And if you're on his point of view that we need to have as much capacity as possible to lead military affairs with with enough secrecy to get the job done, then he's he's right that the media needs to be suppressed a little bit. Anyway, there's stuff to think about. I think these are good documents to maybe give someone if they're they're thinking about this question of of 
you know, what are there limits to press freedom? And speaking of this, we have, this is actually a speech in Congress, so it's not quite the media, but maybe it's related to this, is, um, you know, the growing hostility towards conscription. And of course, it's something the United States, the Union, I should say, embraced later on in the war. The Confederates got their first, and the Union followed shortly thereafter with conscription. Of course, conscription was unfair, both in the North and the South. In the South, if you had, I think it was 40 slaves, you were exempt, the argument being they needed to stay and manage the plantations. Um, and was that the main way you could avoid conscription? Maybe it was. And But in the North, you could either like hire a replacement. So if you were drafted, you could basically find some guy in the street, pay him money, get him to take your place, or pay like a fine. And that fine would you know, pay for some other soldiers. So in both the North and the South, there's this idea that this was becoming a, you know, rich man's war, poor man's fight. And to that, I would respond with the 54th Massachusetts and other regiments like that, which showed it wasn't rich, you know, these people were not fighting for rich men. They were fighting for themselves. They were still poor, obviously, but they were fighting for, and Robert Gould Shaw was rich. But they were, you know, I don't know if this was a war that, at least from, from the Union point of view, that was a rich man's fight. In the South, I think the case is easier to make because it was initiated by pl the planter class. But Clement Vanelgam, I'm not sure how his name is pronounced, but he gives a speech in Congress, and he was one of these peace Democrats opposing emancipation, wanted to end the war, uh, basically pull troops back and negotiate with the South. That's their their platform. And we get this back and forth in Congress and of ultimately his speech where he talks about conscription and and that becomes the, the weapon of the Peace Democrats against Lincoln, against Republicans, against the war. Now this is like a big filibuster, right? It looks long in the text. It's from page 57 to 89, so it's like 30 pages, which I, well, I guess that's like an hour, right? If you were to read this out, maybe an hour and a half. So it's not the longest speech in the world. But it just sort of reads like a big filibuster where he pulls up like English history and he pulls up, uh, you know, talking about conscription in the context of like Richard II and pulls up all these constitutional arguments. And it's all kind of, noise i guess mostly it's noise it seems to me bringing up alexander hamilton and the federalists and attacking them and it's it's a rambling piece um but i suppose it sums up a lot of the i don't know i i think i'm not sure the anti the 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 run-of-the-mill average anti-conscription northerner who might be probably was racist who didn't like that the fact that the United States was fighting a war for, to free the slaves, which was becoming by this point, by early 1863. You know, and they just don't want to fight and, and, you know, walked around New York City and saw the rich people still in their homes and in their suits smoking their pipes or whatever, and they didn't want to go to the front, seeing people die by the thousands. I don't know if they thought about it in these terms as... Valnagam, you know, with this kind of political theory or whatever. 
but I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's something here to be said about the legitimacy of conscription. This was the, these were the first conscription laws in the United States. So it was something that I guess should have been questioned um, at the time, but in the context of their overall perspective, I have a hard time taking them very seriously, I suppose. Um, I mean, he actually says like, like conscription is, is, is worse than slavery, right? Which it clearly isn't. Um, quote, uh, foreign war, home defense. Is, is this conscription for foreign wars, home defense? No, but for the coercion, invasion, and abolition of Negro slavery by force. Sir, the conscription of Russia is mild and merciful and just compared with this. And yet the enforcement of this conscription has just stirred again the slumbering spirit of insurrection in Poland. Uh, end quote. I kind of bringing up some like European affairs as a contrast. But he's saying, you know, mobilizing the population to put down this rebellion and end slavery and finish the American Revolution the way it should have been finished 80 years earlier. Is, the, is, is worse than keeping slavery alive. No, thank you. But it's a really long document, and it's maybe worth checking out if you want to get a perspective on these Peace Democrats, but I found it kind of tedious. Uh, anything else to talk about here? Let me see. Oh, we got a Harry Jacobs document, which is good. Uh, Harry Jacobs, if you don't know, was uh, uh, a black writer who uh, escaped slavery, um, ran away. Uh, her account is written in a, in a book she wrote called Incidents in the Life of the Slave World, which is a brilliant book, which you should read. She, she kind of had a different name at the time, and she, but it was Harry Jacobs. Um, I forget what she called herself in the book, but you can just look up Harry Jacobs and you can find this book and it's wonderful. And she's writing to Lydia uh, Marie Child, an abolitionist. Now, Harry Jacobs, by this point, was doing relief work among um, the runaway slaves in Virginia. And so she's writing to Lydia Marie Child about the conditions of black people in these what were called like early in the war contraband camps right these were the black men and women who who ran to the union union lines to find freedom and often were mobilized for military affairs and eventually of course the, some of these became soldiers but she's talking about the conditions of these refugees now she talks about the bad conditions, but she's also quite optimistic in things like finding employment, um, black people supporting themselves. That's a very, very key to what abolitionists were saying, um, both black and white, but particularly black abolitionists, people like Frederick Douglass and here Harry Jacobs saying once freed, black people are totally capable of, of caring for the for themselves and their families without any, inter, you know, without any burden on the rest of the country. Which is the response, of course, to Lincoln's dilemma. What are we going to do with these people once the war ends? Well, Harry Jacobs says, well, you don't have to do anything. We'll be fine, right? That was kind of what Douglas was saying, too. So she talks about that. Um, 
She also talks about like how they were forming institutions. So this is really key. Um, quote, it was densely crowded, and although some alarm was excited by the rafters given way overhead, quiet was soon restored, and the people were deeply attentive. Eight couples were married on this occasion. We have a day school of 80 scholars and a large number attended evening school, mostly adults. A large sewing circle composed of young and old meet every Saturday afternoon. Three colored men teach a school in the city for those who can afford to pay somewhat for their instructions. Instruction. They have a large number of pupils, mostly ch children of colored citizens, but a few of the, quote, little contrabands attend the school. So we see black people immediately, like the instant of freedom forming their own institutions, which of course is gonna be carried off into reconstruction with the formation of these very institutions, churches and schools um, and, and other civic organizations. And she also talks about uh, how they were caring for orphans. So it's kind of a, it's a very, very inspiring document by uh, a very amazing uh, woman. So I guess that's it. I guess that's enough. I skipped over a few documents, but you know, there's so many in this anthology that it'd be kind of tedious to talk about all of them. Um, a lot of great stuff here. I think the most important thing to in this set of documents is just what impact the transition to emancipation was having almost immediately in like with we saw there creating black institutions the mobilization of black regiments and then entirely a changing public opinion a changing international attitude towards the united states uh, because of that decision it changes everything it changes the war and it changes it into something totally different so uh that's going to be it for now um in the next episode um let me look ahead here make sure any big battles? Maybe Chancellorsville. Yeah, I think we get up in the next episode. We'll get up through like May, eighteen sixty-three. So that will take us up through the Battle of Chancellorsville. Um, yeah, a major defeat. Well, I think that's one of the greatest victories of the Confederates during the war. But it's uh, followed up with the Battle of Gettysburg, which we'll spend a lot of time up in even future episodes. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Um, if you're listening, you can uh, leave a comment or uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. See you next time. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah.